0: blog talk radio hi there i'm lara mize pediatric speech language pathologist and welcome to teach me to talk the podcast today is oh what is today thursday april 3rd and i'm so excited that you've joined me for the show today's topic is a continuation from last week's topic and I heard from so many long-time podcast listeners about how much they enjoyed the show and just with their little comments about the show and I'm going to read some of those so we can talk about it but again this is a continuation from last week's show show number 227 so my suggestion to you is if you have not listened to that show Perhaps you should go back and do that before you hear this show so things will make more sense. I'm going to try really hard not to be super repetitive, and we'll just kind of pick up where we left off last week. But before we do that, let's start with a couple of announcements so you'll know what's going on at teachmetotalk.com. Boy, am I excited. The website is getting a facelift. It is looking better and better when I see the new mock-ups and all the great features we're going to have. And, again, I am thrilled with this, and I'm getting to update articles that I wrote in the past. And it's so funny to to read something that you wrote, say, this happened yesterday. Yesterday was World Autism Awareness Day. So I dusted off an article from 2009. And just the verbiage, just the vocabulary that we use to talk about autism now has changed just a little. If you'll go back and read it, there may be some nuances in there that – You think, "Hmm, I don't know if I'd word it quite that way today. And isn't that wonderful that we're always changing and growing and learning new things and thinking about things in different ways. But I dusted that article off from from 2009, so five years later, if that's correct math. You know, we speech therapists can't do math, can we? (laughs) But five years later, republished that yesterday with some slide updates. So if you've not looked at that article on autism, I encourage you to look at it. And, again, it's really written as uh, from the perspective with a parent being worried. Is this describing my child? Is this something I should be worried about? Oh, my goodness, that feeling in the pit of my stomach, what am I going to do? So it's really just a pretty long descriptive article. I don't know that this is one that I would recommend that therapists copy and give to parents because that might be a little too in-your-face and confrontational and not pleasant but it certainly again is an article that i've we've gotten over a million hits on that can you believe that on on my little website here so a great great um article just for information and a way for you to kind of frame how you think about autism and how you talk about autism and how we present that information to families so i wanted to direct your attention to that Secondly, oh my goodness, the Easter therapy guide. I don't know if I talked about it on last week's show, but it is available for purchase, and it is precious. And I've gotten great feedback from folks watched it and liked the activities. And even uh, somebody emailed me today, or sent me a Facebook message, and had some questions about <laughs> the kit she was seeing, and. I recognized her name, That she had bought the Easter Therapy Guide, but she was talking about specific activities that she had done with the child and asking some questions with how the child responded and just some different concerns that she had. So I, I love it when I get to hear that people are really using those ideas so that you're not just watching it and then doing nothing. <laughs> to change the activities that you're using. But, again, I love it. I think it's a great project. It's a little over an hour long. And what we're doing for this therapy guide is a little bit different. We are offering free, did you hear that, free ASHA CEUs for speech-language pathologists. And ASHA means the American Speech and Hearing Association. And that's our national organization that gives accreditation to speech-language pathologists. If you're a parent or an OT or a developmental therapist or whoever you are, not a speech person and don't know what ASHA means. But every year, therapists have to get a certain number of hours with continuing education. And we are able to offer this one free for a limited amount of time. So if you have not purchased that yet, it's cheap. And it's a great, great way to get your, um, again, an extra hour on your CEUs and really current, cute, seasonal therapy activities for the next few weeks to take us on through the month of April. All right, or I guess it's two more weeks. I think April this year is um, kind of mid-month. Second announcement, let me go ahead and continue with that CEU theme. All of TeachMeToTalk.com DVDs are now approved for ASHA CEU. So if you have those that you watched in the past, um click on teachmetotalk.com find the link that will tell you how to get the ceus uh, and again these are really cheap ceus for what you've already done and give yourself credit for a course that you've already watched we do have our two courses early speech language development taking theory to the floor expanded edition on dvd now as well as steps to building verbal imitation and toddlers and i love how many groups are buying these for um, say, an agency CEU opportunity. And so they're, they're pulling all their staff in and having a day of in-service or a couple of days of in-service. And again, I always love to get those packets back from therapists who've watched it together. And and um, I just love feedback of any kind. So those courses are available. And again, I think they're so much fun if you do those with a friend. All right, a new feature that I started last week on the podcast was Tweet of the Week. And this week... Let me see if I can get to it. The tweet that I I retweeted and want to use is the tweet of the week is about balancing screen time. And if you don't follow Teach Me To Talk on Twitter, you should. So pop on there and be sure to follow us there. But the the tweet says, oh my goodness, let me find it. Okay, it's from Christy Goodwin, PhD, and she says, she's retweeted an article, and the title, it may not be the title, but the topic is, why we need to balance screen time, toddlers watching three hours of TV a day or more are more likely to struggle with learning. Doesn't that just hit you right between the eyes, (laughs) especially if you're a parent and you're letting your kid do that? And so, again, this is a study, I believe it's from Canada. I think it's from Montreal. But the link is there. And if you're a therapist and a research junkie and want to take a look at that, I think it's good information to share with parents. One reason, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends no screen time, but that's not always realistic, is it? So sometimes a parent will say, well, you know, okay, I can't do cold turkey, or we can't just completely eliminate it. What can we do? What do you know? Well, now we have a study to say, well, it shouldn't be more than a couple of hours a day, and we can say toddlers who who have watched more TV than that, according to the research, have more difficulty with academics later on. And there's also some other things um, in that article about bullying and obesity and other things that, again, we may not talk about, we certainly may not think about with our little sweet babies in birth to three, but it's worth mentioning to parents. And again, I think that whole phrase, balance screen time, is a great, great way to think about it. And listen, one more thing before I move on from this tweet. Screen time isn't just about what you watch on TV. It's also including the DVD in the van or the DVD player in the van or the iPad. You know, you're sitting in the doctor's office waiting and a kid uses the iPad for 45 minutes in there. That's part of his screen time for the day. And so, again, these are things we need to share with parents, not to beat them up, not to boss them around, not to tell them what, you know, that they're doing it all wrong. We just need to let them know what evidence-based practice recommendations are and, again, present the information so they can make an informed decision about their child. You know, pediatricians should be sharing this information, but they don't always tell them what we know about early development, do they? So be sure that you're on the front lines of that. And again, follow teachmetotalk.com on Twitter so that you can take a look at that article. And I would love for you to retweet it, too. We've got to get this information out there. So there you go. All right. Let's um, also, let me mention one little thing about Facebook real quick, too. And, oh, we're on Instagram now. So if you're on Instagram, teachmetotalk.com now has an account on there. So I'm excited about that and I can't wait to start uh, posting more pictures and sharing information that way. Let me talk to you though about Facebook. Facebook is really, really, really changing how they notify you or how they they show up posts of pages that you've liked in your feed. So unless you have gone on Facebook and under the light little check mark at the top. You first got to like the page, but then you can click Get notifications. And that way, anytime teachmetotalk.com posts, that's going to show up in your timeline. You'll also get a little notification about it, just like if another friend tagged you or sent you a message or all the other reasons we get notifications on there. But that's the very best way to make sure that information still keeps showing up in your news feed if you're still um, on Facebook a lot so there you go all right moving right along let's pick up with where we left off last week with be the toy part two of this show and remember this all started because i got an email from a very honest speech language pathologist who said i need help with this kid and she described him and again if you've not listened to that show you can read a little bit about it or actually i think i, I posted her whole email Um, to me on teachmetotalk.com under Be the Toy, and the date for that was last week's show date, it was March 25th, and she had a question because she said she has this little guy in therapy and she brings her toys, but he gets so obsessed with a toy bag she can't get anything done, and then when she doesn't use the toys, um, he is craving physical contact with her. And so last week, we really talked about all the reasons why that can happen. It can be overstimulation, like with too much TV, like we talked about last week. It can be that he's a sensory seeker. And so, we, again, we talked about those reasons why, and I started talking about what I would do for a kid like that and how I would work with a kid like that. And then that's what prompted emails that I received from I think today I'm just going to read a couple of those, but I, got, I heard from, again, several longtime listeners, and I love it when, I, when people have emailed me so much, and I may never have met them in person, but I feel like I know them, and I recognize their name when those emails pop up, and so, again, it was so good to hear from them. Uh, one of my, um, the one that I want to share with you is from a speech pathologist named Jill, and she says that she's seen a little guy like this for about six months. And they have gone through phases where she brings the toy bag and then phases where she can't because he becomes obsessed with it and then he won't play with her or his mom. And she said they'll try to do other activities during that time. But, again, the toy is so um, appealing, and that may be too positive a word here. Maybe, you know, they, they just they can't move on from the toy. And so she says when that happens... She has to really, really pull it back and not use any toys at all. And she said then maybe she'll work to only taking in a couple of things, but still really, really relying on those social games and songs. And so um, she also noted that this little guy is really physically aggressive, and she's getting an OT for sensory stuff, which if you'll remember last week, that was one of my recommendations to... The speech pathologist who wrote uh, is that when we see kids like this who just are all over the place, and again, I use the term sensory seeker, which means that they want as much input as they can get. I mean, these kids barely walk. They run. They jump. They climb. Again, how she described it last week is that little boy was all over her. And so when we hear and see kids like this, OT is always a good idea and an OT that that really specializes in sensory information and sensory regulation and processing, whatever you want to call it, now that kind of leads us to <laughs> this discussion about the the newer information that we 're getting about sensory strategies and i 'm getting a little ahead of myself, I, and I think I did the same thing last week where I started to talk about it and i didn 't Let me finish with the emails and then we 'll go back and kind of cover this because I want to be sure. That as professionals you understand what's being written what the research is and that you know exactly what researchers studied and exactly what these headlines that you might be reading mean and what that means to us and how we should adapt and change and explain our everyday practices but again let me go back and finish these emails and I promise we're going to get to that today So anyway, the email from Jill, she's basically just saying this kid has been hard to work with for her, and she um, likes the podcast, and it's so real life to her because this is something that she really, really struggles with. And I hope some of these ideas that I'm going to give today will be helpful for her. Okay. Another longtime listener is Tricia from Indiana. And Tricia is actually a developmental therapist. And she's come to a couple of my conferences and she's called the show. So, boy, I feel like she's my friend (laughs) because I know her in real life. I know what her face looks like. And she sent an email, again, talking about how great the podcast was last week. And she said a lot of her coworkers. Now, Indiana has moved to system. So there are no independent therapists or people with just sole practitioners in Indiana anymore. They all have to be affiliated with a practice. Now, there are pros and cons of that model, and we cannot argue with that. <laughs> um, but one of the pros for that model is that she always has other therapists to talk to. And isn't that great? I mean, I you know, if if... If you're a person that says the word blessing, wouldn't that be a blessing to be able to talk to somebody about kids all the time? But this is what she said. She said a lot of her coworkers don't understand what turn-taking looks like for the toddler. They think it really is something like taking a turn with a game like Candyland Bingo. Yes, that's not it. That's not what turn-taking means as a toddler. And so she goes on to say that doesn't demonstrate reciprocity to her, and, you know, such a nice clinical discussion there. And she's talking about that back-and-forth turn-taking with a person. And Tricia has been so fortunate that she's gotten to do some research at IU and really participate in some of these um, studies that they've done with joint attention and what works to get children engaged when they're otherwise so obsessed with a toy or obsessed with an object that they don't include you. And so um, I loved her email. She sent me, a, you know, I emailed her back and then she sent me another uh, response with a great idea that I wanted to share. And she said one of the things that she does with kids um, is to use a scarf when she's doing turn taking and, and her game. And I can't find the email. Boy, my technological challenges sometimes really impact the show, don't they? But she says with the scarf that they'll play a a game where she'll cover her face with the scarf. And, again, that really is enticing to so many little guys because they can – make eye contact with you when it's not so difficult for them and when there's that shield there and that little bit again of that it takes the pressure off a little bit and i remember playing a game like that way back in the 90s with a couple of little guys and the scarf that i was using i remember i had gotten it for easter so it was one of my easter outfits and it was cream colored but it was translucent. You know, you could see through it. So a really thin scarf, not those, not the kinds of scarves that we wear now, like an older kind of version of a scarf. So that really, really silky material. And I quit using it after a while because it got so darn dirty. I tried to wash it, you know, and that material does not wash well. But I'm going to go back and get a new scarf like that. I need to walk over to goodwill today and see if I can find one and or you know look for one in my shopping things because that is a great 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 activity and again the turn-taking piece of that you can cover the child's face and let him pull it off so if he's done peek a with you before that's going to be so fun because now he can still see you he can still look through the scarf and see your face and see your eyes and also cover yourself like she's suggesting take the scarf off your face Guys, that's what turn-taking is. That's what turn-taking looks like with a toddler. Let's talk about turn-taking. If, and, again, let me give you a couple of examples of this, if this is new information for you. Turn-taking with a toddler could be, too, like he's taking a drink of his sippy cup, and then you, know, you grab it from him and pretend like you're going to drink, too, and then you set it down. And then you're, you want him to want you to do it again, where he's holding that cup up to your mouth. Or you're playing with a baby doll, and there's a bottle there, and he tries to give you the bottle. Or you're brushing the baby doll's hair, and then then he wants to brush your hair. That's turn taking with the toddler. Or think about it more in terms of parent interaction. It would be when a parent plays a game with the kid. Let's say dad's gonna honk his nose or spill his belly or whatever. Crazy thing they do in their family, then the kid tries to do it back to dad. That's turn taking, and that's what we need to see, and that's the enjoyment and the back and forth and the sharing experiences that we want to get going with kids. And guys, this is why social games and these little routines work because we take um, we take the object out of it. A lot of our little guys really cannot shift their attention from a toy, especially if it's really cool. And, again, you know how much I love cool toys. <laughs> if you have listened to this show at all or seen any of my DVDs or taken a course, I love toys. I love toys. But there are some children for whom toys aren't quite developmentally appropriate yet because it's, if the toy is there, you disappear. Or, again, they become so, you know, crazed with getting the toy and hoarding it and using it and leaving you out that there's no no communication going on so you cannot let that happen and when you have a have a kid like that you really do have to take the toy out of it and like we talked about last week on the show be the toy and so let me continue to give you some additional ideas for other things you could do, and again, thank you, Tricia, for sending me, um, reminding me about that scarf activity because it's a good one. It's an oldie but a goodie, and I've forgotten about it. And I want to, I want to be sure to get that out. And again, the reason that works is for eye contact too, is because you have that screen there, and that makes eye contact a little bit easier for those kinds of kids. All right, music toys are another. If you're going to use objects, you're not just sticking with the social game piece. Music toys are another oldie but goodie kind of thing that you can bring out to um, entice a kid to pay attention to you. And this week I saw a really, really cute video. It's by a music therapist, and his website is therhythmtree.com. I don't follow his website, though. I saw it reposted by practicalaac.org, and that's practical, P-R-A-A-C, T-I-C-A-L, um, AAC.org. And for those of you who are not there, this AAC. That's Alternative Augmentative Communication. And that's that's um, this organization does a lot of that with devices and uh, pictures and signs or whatever they're going to use, anything they need to use to supplement a child's uh, spoken communicative attempts, especially for our little guys with more significant um, developmental issues. So anyway, take a look at that, and he has some really cute ways that he works on turn taking and again getting this social reciprocity piece and and here you are using a toy because it's not quite as um, intrusive or that's probably not a good word it's not as limiting for you because the kid still is going to include you and I love how he's right in the kid's face and it's an older child that he's playing with but I wanted to direct that attention to your video and I or to that video and I've had good luck with music toys with um, kids for that reason because you can get them face-to-face it's not so complicated that they're or or again so fancy or technologically driven that they're going to want to leave you out they can still include you and it, sometimes the simpler toys are going to be better for these kinds of kids when we kind of get to that toy face but before we get there Let's talk about that first kind of social gain piece, and I've mentioned this a lot, and last week on the show I said that every therapist that does early intervention that practices with this birth to three or with an early preschool population should have at least 10 social gains that you know, that you are ready to pull out and use at any given time, that you don't have to think about, that you just know, that you're not sitting in a family's living room or in your office or in your classroom thinking, what the heck am I going to do? You have the games. You know which ones you're going to do. And so someone, I can't remember who it was, emailed me and said, Laura, you said that on the podcast. Tell me, what are your ten social games? I don't have that many. I only have a couple. And so my suggestion to her probably should have been, well then you need to buy Teach Me to Play With You Which is my book that outlines those games. And I think I mentioned that on last week's show. But I want to go ahead and give my list of the ten social games that I use. And again, this is what I would do at the beginning, like like last week's emailer said, She's got this little guy, she realizes she can't use toys. She's going to put them away, but she still needed some more ideas. This is what I would do. I I talked about it last week, why these things work, but this week I'm not going to repeat other than to give you my 10 go-to social games. So my first one is peekaboo. And when a kid kind of moves on beyond that, I change it. I bump it up a little bit and, and introduce a song and do the where-oh-where oh where song. Now, if you're a long-time listener of this podcast, you've heard me sing this before, but it's you know a, a from some show. I think it was a Disney show when my daughter, who's now turning 18, uh, used to watch Disney when she was – Little and it's you know you sing the little song you know, you know where oh where oh where is Jackson where oh where oh where is Jackson where oh where oh where is Jackson where can Jackson be? And again, it's a version of a Boo. You rip the blanket off his head or wait for him to do it, and everybody laughs and you have a good time and you repeat it. Don't forget to like Trisha's suggestion: cover yourself up, and you are still singing the where 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 part. Use your big hand motions on the where, 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 because long before a kid can say where, he should be trying to copy your body movements and copy that where, where, where motion. And again, you can kind of turn that into a sign or a gesture later when you're looking for things. So that's that's my, I'm counting that as one social game because I always kind of start with peek-a-boo and then move it to where, where. My second one would be row, row your boat. And that's where a kid sits on my legs and we I hold his hands and we rock back you know, and forth and we I think last week I sang that on the show where your ending part of that is really fun. You have a scream. It's you know, if you see an alligator, close your eyes and scream. Ah toddlers think that is hysterical and a lot of times you'll get that early vocal attempt on that little uh vocalization there, that little yelling. It's oftentimes the very first, um, again, sound that I hear purposely from a child when he's first starting to imitate me. So row, row your boat is another good one. And again, I like to play it for the kids on my lap and we're looking at each other. Sometimes you'll alter it to go fast or slow, depending on what the kid likes. If a kid needs more movement to stay with you on your lap, try riding a little horsey. And so again, same premise, he's sitting on your lap holding your hands, but you're you're kind of holding him down, but you're still bouncing your legs so that you're giving him that feedback. So that's my third one. My fourth one is ring around the rosies, and I adore that game because you end up sitting on the floor. And so after you've played it four or five times, and if a kid is ready, you can transition to something else. You can move on to another social game where you're sitting on the floor, maybe row, row your boat or ride a little horsey. And I like to use... Um, ring around the rosies when a kid has been up and running and moving, but I'm thinking I've got to get a better way to transition him to sitting rather than saying sit down or come on here, we're going to do this. So, again, you can use the game to your advantage there because you end up sitting. Now, most kids are going to want you to play more than once, um, which is great, but you do end it in that sitting position. So, again, another reason I really, really like it. Now, sometimes moms will try to modify ring around the rosies, Where they're just sitting there singing it like as they hold their kids' hands and aren't up actually, you know, dancing in the little circle, walking in the circle, don't do that. (laughs) Talk to moms about why getting up and moving is important and how they can use that to really engage their child. And, again, I've had a lot of wild kids who want to run and rip and roar and playing Ring Around the Roses with them is a good way to kind of pull them back to me and get them, again, re engage with me because we're holding hands. I used to play that down on my knees more than I do now. Uh, but if your knees can take it, I like playing when you're on your knees and you're still holding their hands and you're still, you know, your knee walking there. But why would we do that? It would be to establish eye contact. And it's much more likely that a child will look at you if you were put yourself in his visual field. So do that. Now, instead of being on my knees as much, I just crouch down and just lean way down when I'm playing. The other thing that I really do with Ring Around the Rosies is really, really pace it so that I'm kind of stomping and singing um, very rhythmically, like Ring Around the Rosies, pocket full of posies, and then I really stomp on ashes, ashes, down and then I really do pull the kid to the ground and make him sit even if it's just for a second because he gets that sensory boost and he learns part of the game his part of the game is to hold your hands and then to fall down okay and so that's a huge 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 uh receptive language goal and participation goal that we're meeting when we get a kid who learns the game that well. And again, it's a super functional word. I've I've taught a lot of kids to say the word down with ring around the rosies and ride a little horsey. My next... My uh, social game, I think that one, two, three, four, brings us up to number five, is Choo Choo Train, and if you have seen my course, Early Speech-Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, I had a little guy who has an extensive history that I'm still getting to see at age five, but when I saw him when he was one, um, he liked to be on his back a lot, and his PT told me that he was more vocal on his back than any other position, so I thought I've got to have some kind of game or something that I'm doing beyond just oohing and cooing with him and those fun little exchanges that we all do, but I wanted a social game to go with it. So the Choo Choo song is a great one for that. And the words are in Teach Me to Play With You if if you don't know that one. But it's a great one, again, for kids who like to be on their back. After a kid has thrown a holy and is on their back, that's often uh, something that, uh, a way that I kind of bring them back to me. If a kid kind of has thrown himself down and has maybe had it a little bit, I'll grab his little legs, pull him closer, and sing that little song and do that little routine. So that's one. Ready, set, go. It's one of my go-to social games where we're running and I'm catching, you know, where I'm holding him as we say, ready, set, go, and then we run, and then I catch the kids, keep them up. Hug them close to me, tickle them, slam them on the couch. And again, when I'm saying slam them on the couch, please know that that's a joke and that that's just, um, the, again, a little tongue-in-cheek way of saying we're going to provide some pretty strong sensory input there. Kids love that kind of thing. And you would never do it strong enough to hurt a kid or hurt his neck. Or And if a kid's not very mobile and their muscle tone issues or all the other things you know certainly with a medically fragile child i'm not going to do that but but i want you to know with our little rough and tumble sensory stickers they really do need that input so ready set go is a great one the next one that i love is another kind of on the floor game it's called up 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 down and again this would be a kid who likes row row your boat and who likes ride a little horsey this might be something i do either before this kind of game where before row row your boat or ride horsey and they can't take that much language yet when I'm just kind of getting them used to me because this one is really, really simple. You're just lifting your knees and you're saying up, 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 down and then you put your knees down and they, they have that falling and kids learn how to anticipate that and again you're using that really functional word with down. Another, um, my next one is the ah, boom game. And this is just where I'm lifting my arms in the air and saying ah, boom. And then slamming my hands down on the couch, on the floor. I play it all the time with kids kids in the ball pit here in my office where I'm um, there in the ball pit and maybe I kind of stick my head in there and I lift my arms up really big and do ah, boom. Or I might do it on the side of the ball pit and it's – uh, it's a clear kind of plastic so they can see me there, and I'm sure that looks kind of cool to our kids who are uh, visual seekers. And so, you, you know, you can play it anywhere. You can, I play it with uh, babies in high chairs at Cracker Barrel If I'm walking to the bathroom, and I'm thinking, I cannot resist this cute little thing sitting here. Let me play I'll Boom with her. And so great, great game. Other Two other ones, let me finish up with the night-night game and going to sleep. Pretending to sleep and snore is a last for one, two, and 3 year olds So if you don't have your version of the night-night game, get one because kids love it. It's universal. You can use it with you, the you and the kid just playing at the beginning, and then you can transition that to objects. So you can use it with baby dolls or stuffed animals. Or I've played night-night game with Thomas. If a kid really likes Thomas the Train, so that's a good one. My last game on my go-to kind of ten-games list it's the marching, marching game, and it's a little song. And, again, it's in Teach Me to Play, if you don't know it, but it has so many cute little verbs, little action words. And again, with our little guys that we're we're working on that interaction piece and we're working on that engagement piece. And, but, guys, it is fun for teaching children to understand verbs or action words when they have it really Exhibited that that level of comprehension that we need them to have with new action words, so marching marching is always a fun game I play that's another good one for groups, and so if you have sibling groups, you can play that game. if you're in a little daycare or preschool, marching marching is a fun fun game to play. So that was my list of ten games. All right before we finish up today's show, um, I want to I want to talk about the sensory information that I told you last week about and this week about, that there's there's starting to be some rumblings with questioning the effectiveness of sensory strategies, okay? Now, as a therapist, if you've been a birth to three therapist, I'm sure that, um, I don't know, you may not have heard this before. It's It's kind of new, but there's some research that was published last year that said that children on the And, again, let me try to kind of find it for you here. After doing a review of many different studies, children on the spectrum, um, the sensory strategies that their families or their teachers or therapists were employing were not effective in reducing their restrictive or stereotypic behaviors. So what does that mean? That means they're little stems. So that means if they flap their hands, they still flap their hands, even with the sensory strategies. Or if they wanted to look at the ceiling fan or obsessively mouth toys or whatever their stereotypic behavior was, the study said, the studies, that there was not a significant decrease in those behaviors enough to recommend sensory strategies. Okay, I get that. I believe that too because haven't you had little guys who did some of that and even though you were using sensory strategies, it almost took other things. They had to get more skills. They had to get more engaged. There was something else that may have been... uh, um, uh, that you would have attributed their progress to rather than sensory strategies, okay? And again, let me just say here, I'm not knocking sensory strategies. I'm not saying either that I don't believe that research. As with most things, I think this is kind of a gray area. I still think that our sensory strategies are worth pursuing, especially when they look like real-life stuff. And let me kind of back up and, and tell you what. Your, or, or why, your grandmother probably used sensory strategies with you and your mom. Do you know what I mean by that? Do you know what I'm about to say? How many times, did you, and if you're in your 40s or older, we kind of all grew up, or most of us I think did, playing outside. And, you know, especially me, deep south, I'm from Mississippi, If I've never, if you haven't listened to a show where I've shared that. And so the weather's pretty good most of the year. And when your mom or your grandmother, my mamaw, got sick of all the kids in the house, what did they do? She said, get outside. You get out that door, and I don't want to see you till I call you for supper or call you for lunch or, you know, whatever the next meal was or whenever, you know, bedtime or when the street lights come on or whatever your mom or grandmother used to say. Because it was a different world then. We didn't have all the safety concerns that we have now. But parents really understood you've got to get outside and run and play and jump and sling and hide and chase and throw and kick and do all that stuff so that you can come inside this house and not be a wild Indian. And so you can come in this house and calm down and eat like a normal person at the table with us or, or take a bath and go to bed or whatever, again, her goal was. But, but you know we call those things now, we call that movement piece sensory strategy, but really it's just kind of common sense with kids, don't you think that? So just because you're reading a piece of research that says you know the headline might be you know especially if it's not the original journal headline it might you know and sometimes newspapers and websites and magazines they They take a piece of scholarly research and they sensationalize it by taking a little bit of of what the results were. And it's not that they lie or completely distort the truth, but again, they kind of make it more than what it is. And then you go back and you read the study and you think, well, you know, that was not really representative of what that study found at all. And so I think that maybe that's what we're going to hear with sensory strategies. And and there is this hoopla again now of we need to rethink this. All this stuff may not work, you know the um, the new DSM. Well, even the old one did not include, and that's the uh, the manual that we use to get all of our official diagnoses. It didn't include sensory processing disorder as a standalone diagnosis, and the the people who put that together, their board, didn't include it by itself because they felt like that diagnosis doesn't really stand alone. And, again, if you're an OT, you probably are going to disagree with that statement, especially if you are um, have been really trained in sensory strategies and you believe that with all your heart. And then you're going to say, no, there are kids that that's their only quirk. That's their That is their standalone diagnosis. But let me kind of tell you how I look at it. I kind of look at sensory stuff as it's it's part of a bigger diagnosis. Certainly our children who get an autism spectrum diagnosis have sensory issues. Our kids with ADD, ADHD, usually have some sensory issues. Many, many, many of our little guys with language delays and disorders have some sensory issues. So it's kind of a coexisting condition and that's what other things again if you've not read any of this if this is the first time that you're hearing that there may be some controversy with sensory strategies google it or bing it or whatever your search engine is so that you can read some of that research for yourself um i'm not going to put a list of that on the site because i want you to do your own work with that. And again, I don't want anybody misinterpreting that I don't believe that sensory strategies are successful because I think particularly in the area of regulation, helping a child learn to sit and participate and be with you, that those strategies are extremely helpful. And again, I'm talking about just common sense things like learning and um, jumping and, and swinging, those, again, those things that our moms and grandmothers wanted us to do years and years ago even to help us um, have fun and then, more importantly, be able to do that next full thing on, on the list. You know, that's why recess started at school. is so that kids could get their wiggles out and really get in, you know, run out all that excess energy, and then come back inside and sit down and do their academics. So don't let reading some of that negate what you know works. And, and that's all I'm going to say about it. And, again, I'm not going to put those links on the website because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea about that. But do your own homework. You could Google something like, does sensory therapy work? Uh, debate over sensory processing you know, the benefits of sensory strategies with autism, you could do any of that so that you could read some of that information for yourself and kind of form your own opinion about that. All right, let's see how we're looking on time. Um, Let's go ahead and end today's show. I think we're close to about 45 minutes. I have some other things that I want to share for kind of the next step with Be the Toy. Um, that are a little bit more advanced or more complex or just a little bit of an extension. So let's say that you have a little guy like the, the other SLPs and developmental therapists shared with us like this on your caseload. And you're thinking, okay, hey, I've got these social games going. And, you know, we mentioned the scarf toy and the music toys, you know, and you're thinking, okay, I've done this for a few weeks. He's better. He's more engaged with me. He's playing with me better. He's playing with mom better. Mom's reporting some really nice things that are happening. And you're thinking, okay, we're, he's got a, his little repertoire of about ten games and we play these great now. And, again, he stays with me. He stays with mom. mom. Mom's getting the same results. What have I do after that? So that's what next week's show is going to be about. It's going to be how to take those kids who, again, have done the hard work. You, It might take you eight weeks or 12 weeks or, you know, perhaps longer than that to get a kid in the routine of really including you, engaging with you, and and have enough repetition so that cognitively he's learned these games. He remembers them. Perhaps a kid may even be initiating some of these games with you. And you're thinking, okay, that's great, Laura, but what do I do from here? That's what next week's show is going to be about. It's going to be transitioning into really simple kinds of playthings where we use an object either, again, to meet some sensory needs as kind of a, that next little bump, that next little thing, and we want to make sure with these four really familiar toy. and our purpose here is to make sure that the kids still include us in play. Step above what we've talked about today, so that's what we're going to do next week. Now, again, if you have not listened to show 227, go back and do that before next week. That could be your homework. <laughs> so that you've listened to that beginning part, you've listened to today's part, and then I hope that you'll join me next week for um, part three with this series two. Okay, I'm trying to play my music and it's not playing. There it comes. All right. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's show. I love hearing feedback from you. So if you have any ideas that you think would be helpful to other listeners, email them to me, Laura at yoututalk.com or get me on Twitter, cc2talk.com, or on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye-bye.